0: all the way to chapter 12, uh, but we'll just look at chapter 11 tonight. So we'll begin reading uh, at verse 1. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot, and Gilead begot Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore sons, and when his sons, a wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob. And worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out reigning with him. It came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. And so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Then they said to Jephthah, Come and be our commander that we may fight against the people of Ammon. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, This is why we have turned again to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon, and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them, and Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon, saying, What do you have against me that you have come to fight against me in my land? And the king of the people of Ammon answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt, from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok, and to the Jordan. Now therefore restore those lands peaceably. So Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon, and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. But when Israel came up from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea, and came to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let me pass through your land, but the king of Edom would not heed. And in like manner they sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained in Kadesh, and they went along through the wilderness, and bypassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab, and came to the east side of the land of Moab, and encamped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the border of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. Then Israel sent messengers to Sion king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land into our place. But Sion did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sion gathered all his people together, encamped in Jahaz, and fought against Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sion and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. Thus Israel gained possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country, They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites, from the Arnon to the Jabbok, and from the wilderness to the Jordan. Now the Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. Should you then possess it? Will you not possess whatever Chemosh your God gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God takes possession of before us, we will possess. And now are you any better than Balak the son of (coughs) Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? Well, Israel dwelt in Heshbon and its villages, in Aror and its villages, and in all the cities along the banks of the Arnon for three hundred years. Why did you not recover them within that time? Therefore, I have not sinned against you, but you wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord the judge render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which Jephthah sent him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he advanced toward the people of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. And he defeated them from Aror as far as Minith, twenty cities, and to Abel-Karamim with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter, coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child. Besides, he had ni- besides her he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. So she said to him, My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do it to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. Then she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. So he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months. And she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father. And he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Amen. When we come to pray to our God, the purpose of prayer is to pray God's promises back to him and make requests according to his will. What prayer is not is not meant to be a manipulation of the Lord God Almighty to get what we want. We need to be careful in our prayers, and we need to be careful in the things that we say. We need to be careful that we don't try to make deals with the Lord. Now, this has certainly been a problem for Israel because they were functioning like a pagan. When one tries to make a deal with the deity, that's a very pagan sort of notion. And Israel was functioning like a pagan nation. Throughout this book, we see, as Bloch says, the canonization of the people of Israel. They look less and less like the people of God and more and more like the nations that surround him. And we see this with the people of Israel as they do try to make deals with God. They try to use God when they want him, when they need him. But they do not wish to worship him as their God. They treat him like a holy horseshoe. They treat him like a religious rabbit's foot rather than the Lord God Almighty. They function very superstitiously like the nations around them as they continue to degenerate. And so we're in the section of Jephthah, and perhaps goes a little bit with Samson as well. We certainly saw in Judges chapter 10 the degeneration of the people further, as we see in chapter 10, verse 6, and following the many gods that they served. Their idolatry is disastrous, and the many gods that they worship indicate that they have become like the nations around them. And so they need a victor. They need deliverance from the hands of Ammon. They need deliverance uh, from the people that God has handed them over to. And so we do see a glorious victory under Jephthah, this judge, but we also see his tragic vow as well. Because the problem, I think, is very clear. It's when one does not trust in God. And when one does not trust in God, one begins to manipulate God. One begins to negotiate with God rather than trust in his promises. Again, this is a problem for Israel. They did not trust in the word of the Lord, but tried to negotiate with the Lord. Again, this is a very pagan sort of notion. It goes something like this. If God, you will do this, then I will. Rather than trusting him, rather than worshiping him, rather than honoring him, it is trying to make a deal with the Lord. Now, thankfully, God redeems us of all of our sins, and he's forgiven us of all our sins, past, present, and future. But if we're being honest with ourselves, sometimes we, the people of God, can be manipulative. Sometimes we, the people of God, can be superstitious. We can be superstitious when it comes to our words. We can be superstitious when it comes to how we worship. And sometimes we can be superstitious with our devotions. It has to be at this certain time. It has to be in this certain place. It has to be in this certain moment. But so sometimes we can still have that idea within us. We can still have this mercenary spirit, this manipulative spirit, and we need to be watchful uh, in our Christian walk. So in Judges 12, we see the victory, but we also see the tragedy of Jephthah. We see his faith in some instances, but we also see his lack of faith as Yahweh uses him to save Israel from Ammon. So victory and tragedy, faith and lack of faith. And we see this all in his words. Notice there's a lot of negotiations that are going on throughout this chapter. And so we're going to frame the three points with this idea of negotiating. So the first point will be a negotiation with Gilead in verses 1 through 11. Secondly, we'll see a negotiation with Ammon in verses 12 through 28. And then lastly, we'll see a negotiation with God in verses 29 to the end. So 29 to 40. So negotiation with Gilead, negotiation with Ammon, and then a negotiation with God. So let's first look at a negotiation with Gilead in verses 1 through 11. Now again, the context is important. Chapter 10 sets the stage. We see the cycle begin there. This is after those two minor judges, Tola and Jer. Uh, We don't know much about them, but we see that God uses them to uh, save the people. God uses them to redeem the people. Uh, But we see their, uh, their wickedness abounds all the more. Idolatry after salvation continues. So the people are severely distressed. They cry out to the Lord. They say, we have sinned. And as I said, that's not repentance. It is, again, this manipulation. Again, it is a crying out. We see God knows what they're doing. And he says, I delivered you. I saved you. I know what you're going to do. God knows their hearts. God recognizes that. And so they again say, we sinned. And then there is that difficult verse that says, and his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. And so he's going to redeem them. He's going to save them, but not because of their repentance. Again, we've seen the cycles before. It's not repentance. It's a cry out in distress. And God is good, God is pleased to save, and God is pleased to deliver them, but not because of their so-called repentant heart. And so then in chapter 10, verses 17 through 18, we see this question um, uh, come up, who will save them from Ammon? They forsook the Lord, God sells them into the hands of Ammon, uh, the people of Ammon, and so a lot of the, the setting of this chapter, and the setting with Jephthah, is on the eastern side of the Jordan in Gilead. Gilead is a region, but Gilead is also perhaps part of the tribe of Manasseh as well, or Manassites as a clan. Uh, So the main uh, focus or the main setting is on the eastern side of the Jordan. So there seems to be this hope. There is this question, who's going to fight for the people? Who's going to be the deliverer of the people? Who's going to be the one who shall be and come out and rise up out of Gilead to save the people of Israel? And this is where chapter 11 begins. And we have some background information here. We return to the main sort of time frame of the setting of, this, of the situation in verse 4, but we see some background information. Who is going to save the people? Well, we see verse 1. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor. That's great. It checks the box. He's a Gileadite and he's a man of valor. That's exactly what they need. They need a mighty man, they need a man who is good with artillery, a man who is good with the army, a man who's got military strategy, and a man who is ready to go into battle to fight for his people. So he's part of the eastern tribes where Ammon was wreaking havoc, Uh, so he's, by and large, it seems like a good start. But then we see some issues with Jephthah. We see his birth, and then we see his being an outlaw. And so we see, but he was the son of a harlot, and Gilead begot Jephthah. Now again, Gilead is the, uh, uh, probably the name initially of the tribe, the first Gilead. Uh, but Gilead would have been a name that people perhaps use later on as well. So uh, Gilead was his father's name. Uh, the namesake of the tribe was his father's name. And so he was the son of a harlot. So he's a mighty man of valor, but he's the son of a harlot. And one question you have to ask yourself is, why was his dad going to see a harlot? That should, you know, pop up in our minds. Why is this happening uh, in Israel? And so he's the son of an, you know, of an illegitimate affair. He's the son of one who is not his father's wife. And she begets Jephthah. Now, the indication seems to be that he is the firstborn. Because verse 2, Gilead's wife bore sons. And when his wife, so not Jephthah's mother, when his wife's son grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, they forgot the inheritance rights of the father's children from Deuteronomy chapter 23. So we see that he's the son of a harlot. We see his greedy brothers who who negotiate, but mainly just drive him out. They say, you're going to have no inheritance. You're going to have nothing. They're violating Deuteronomy 23. They're going against those inheritance laws. You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So he is driven out. He's a mighty man of valor, but he is driven out. Verse 3. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob, and worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. So when these worthless men recognize his might, they recognize his gravitas. They recognize that he is the one to be followed. And he lives a life as an outlaw. He lives this life as a marauder. He is, lives this life, uh, a valiant man, but a son of a harlot. And he's, so, he's not on the short list of potential saviors with all these things. He's mighty, but he's a son of a harlot. And he's also this uh, outlaw as well. So he's an outlaw. But he is mighty. He is one that would not be one you would think would save uh, his people from Ammon. But that is just the thing, isn't it? Yahweh uses men who are despised and rejected. Now Davis makes that connection with despised and rejected. Uh, Certainly Jephthah has his issues, but we'll see talk about being despised and rejected a little bit more in just a moment. So he is this outlaw. He's driven from the land. But then the people need him. And so he's brought back to the land. We see how the outlaw returns to the land uh, in verses 4 through 11. So they have this problem. Gilead has a problem. We return to the main time frame of the narrative. And it came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. So they have been oppressed by Ammon for 18 years. The people now, uh, the specific war is in view. They made war against them, and so Gilead needs help. They probably heard of the marauder, the marauder Jephthah, and all his marauding that he does. And so they make war. Uh, they come after they made war. The elders of Gilead go and get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Then they said to Jephthah, "Come and be our commander. That we, that we may fight against the people of Ammon. Please come and be our savior. The people who thrusted Jephthah out." are now asking for his help. And he recognizes that. He recognizes that they are using him. Because he says in verse 7, So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? Now many commentators, Matthew Henry, Dale Ralph Davis, Daniel Block, all recognize parallels with what we see in verses 4-11, through with what we saw in verses 6 through 18 in chapter 10. That is, Israel is treating Jephthah, or Gilead is treating Jephthah, just as Israel has treated Yahweh. And there's a lot of the same wording that is used in both of the chapters. And it's important to see that Israel uses Jephthah just as they used Yahweh. Similar language is used. It's, again, a sign of paganism, wanting something from God when they need it, rather than having loyalty all the time. And Jephthah recognizes this. He sees this. What have you done? Why did do you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, verse 8, this is why we have turned again to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon. And be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So fight for us. Be our commander. Then if you win, then you can be our head. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander, And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. So the word was secure. The word was affirmed. And he spoke to the Lord at Mizpah concerning these very things. But we don't see the specific words. There's only one time words are uh, actually spoken to Yahweh uh, by Jephthah in this chapter. But we see in general he's speaking in light of what the Gileadites have said to him. And God functions as that witness against them. So he is uh, made leader, he is made the commander, this one who was despised and rejected. Now again, Davis points out, again, application is sometimes difficult. How do we draw it out? That's why other guys are very helpful sometimes. And Davis does draw out that the (coughs) servants of God most of the time are despised and rejected. I mean, the Lord Jesus Christ was despised and rejected by men in a different way, although I do believe that the judges, the saviors, point ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ, Their failures magnify the perfection of the Lord and what he does. And he is the one who is truly despised and rejected by men. And the important thing to recognize is most of the time you and I are going to be despised and rejected. If Christ was persecuted, we're going to be persecuted. If God was used, we're going to be used. And it's unfortunate that sometimes it does come by way of the people of God because the people of God still have remaining corruption. The point is, we shouldn't be surprised by it. We ought to honor God, we ought to glorify God. Whether we receive notoriety or applause from men, we ought to honor God regardless, for God has warned us that in this world we will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So that's the negotiation with Gilead. The one who is driven out is now the one who is needed, and certainly he plays upon the idea of being needed uh, to advance himself a little bit as well. So he's negotiated. This is a successful negotiation with Gilead. But then we see a not-so-successful negotiation with Ammon in verses 12 through 28. That is, certainly what is said is true, but it doesn't lead to the outcome uh, that one perhaps would wish. So we, let's look secondly then at this negotiation with Ammon... Verses 12 through 28. And notice we see Jephthah's inquiry. And we see this lie about the land. This battle over the land. This fight over the land. Whose land is it really? And so we see Jephthah goes. He sends messengers to the king of Ammon saying, What do you have against us? What do you have against me? That you've come to fight against me in my land. Well, Ammon thinks it's their land. Verse 13. And the king of the people of Ammon answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt and from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore those lands peaceably. Their claim is that Israel took away our land. Now, if I can highlight one aside, we know from chapter 10 that Ammon is being used by God. We know from Ammon, or from chapter 10, that Ammon is being used in the providence of God, the power of God working through them, but we know that they're not trying to glorify God, are they? They have something else in view. They have another motive in view. Their motive is, to, is a land grab, and they're going to try and take this land by way of fraud, by way of lying. You see, they're saying, we just want our land back. That's just all. But the problem is, Ammon is very misunderstood. The land that they're talking about was never theirs to begin with. And this is what Jephthah goes on to say in verses 14 to the end, 14 through 28. He gives them a lesson about the land, a lesson about how they received the land, a lesson about how Israel passed over Ammon and let it be. If you remember, Moab and Ammon were sons of whom? Lot. And Lot certainly was part, you know, of... uh, uh, Certainly uh, Lot was connected with Abraham, and then he uh, he left. But we see in Deuteronomy 2, as there's this recounting of the people wandering in the wilderness, and we see a recounting here by Jephthah of the people wandering in the wilderness. But in Deuteronomy 2, we actually explicitly see that God says, don't go into Ammon, for it is for Lot's descendants. It is for them. God's common goodness and grace to Ammon, giving them that land. But Ammon is going too far. Ammon is trying to take a land that is not theirs. And so we see Jephthah gives the historical argument first of what actually happened. We see Ammon's audacity to try and stake this claim. So Jephthah sends messengers, verse 14, to the king of the people of Ammon and said to them, thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. Again, this is recounted in Deuteronomy 2, but we see it actually take place in Numbers 20 through 22. As, we make, as Israel makes their way, and they eventually engage in a battle with Sion and Og, king of the Amorites. For when, we, when Israel came up from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let me pass through your land, but the king of Edom would not heed. And in like manner they sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained in Kadesh. And they went along through the wilderness, and bypassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab, and came to the east side of the land of Moab, and encamped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the border of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. Then Israel sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said them, please let us pass through your land into our place. But Sion did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sion gathered all his people, encamped in Jahaz, and fought against Israel. This is the land we're talking about. We're talking about Sion, king of the Amorites' land. Ammon thinks it's theirs, but as we see, God has given it to the people of Israel. and the Lord of Israel delivered Sion, verse 21, and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. Thus Israel gained possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok, and from the wilderness to the Jordan. It is what God had given them. This is what actually happened. This is what actually occurred. Ammon, you did not take it. Israel took it, and God has given it to them. It is an audacious claim that comes from the king of Ammon to say that that is their land. It was never theirs to begin with. So that's the historical argument, as Bloch says, and Bloch also gives other arguments there in following his train of thought. We see the theological argument in verses 23 and 24. God gave it. What did your God give you? Verse 23. Now the Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people, Israel. Should you then possess it? I mean, he's just throwing these, you know, these arguments out here. He's throwing these, you know, these good arguments to just throw these bombs out to make sure he wins. Will you not possess whatever Chemosh your God gives you to possess? Not that he believe that he's an actual God, but he's mocking them. Whatever your God supposedly gave you, why is that okay? But whatever our God has given us, uh, we will possess. He is our God. He is the one who's provided for us. He is the one who has led us. And he is the one who has given us this land. It comes from him and not for you. We see that he has an understanding. Jephthah has an understanding of the history of Israel. He has an understanding of the goodness of God, an understanding of what Yahweh has done for them. He also recognizes the personal argument, verse 25. So historical, theological, now a personal argument. And now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? We see this in Numbers 22. Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab. Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? Now, again, Balak had his issues with Israel, but it wasn't over a land claim, was it? And so what he's trying to say here is, Balak never had an issue over the land, but you do? This is your problem? This is your issue? This is what you're trying to do? Balak hated Israel, but it wasn't over a land dispute. And then he gives a chronological argument as well. You've been here for a while, but this has never come up? This problem has never arisen? This, he says in verse 26, Well, Israel dwelt in Heshbon and its villages in Aurora and its villages, and in all these cities along the banks for 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? Like, why did you not come now? Why is this a problem here for you now? Why is it an issue now? And so therefore, he says, I have not sinned against you, but you wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord, the judge, the one judge overall, all, the Lord, not Chemosh, but the Lord, may he be the one who judges, may he be the one who renders judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words Jephthah had sent him. Ammon would not listen. So this is going to lead into the battle, lead into their slaughter, and the Lord delivering them by way of actual Battle, But all this, I think, is meant to teach us, and I think it's meant to teach Israel, then by extension us, is to remind us of the goodness of God and who gives the land to the people. And to remind the people of Israel how the Lord had provided for them, where it came from, and how the Lord was with them as they wandered through the wilderness. The history lesson for Ammon is a history lesson for Israel. The original audience need to be reminded about who God is, need to be reminded about what He had done for them. They need to be reminded of the goodness of God. Psalm 136, with all the repetitions of His love endures forever, or His mercy endures forever, recounts all that God has done. And it also includes when God takes and defeats Sion and Og. As God slays those kings for the people, His mercy endures forever was one of the key issues in Israel they forgot God's goodness they forgot that he gave them the land they forgot that his mercy endures forever and they've been worshipping the gods of the nations they've been treating God like one of the gods around them and so that's that negotiation with Ammon it doesn't go the way perhaps Jephthah wanted it to go and so this leads then into Jephthah negotiating with God in verses 29 through 40. So we do see his victory. We we do see victory in verses 29 through 33, specifically verse 29 and verses 32 and 33. We're going to look at those verses first, then come back to verses 30 and 31. So we see the victory of the Lord. We see the Spirit of the Lord descend upon him, come upon him, verse 29. Just like we've seen with other judges, he's empowered to be the Savior, empowered to be the deliverer, He's not an ignorant man. He knows the history of Israel. He knows things. And the Lord is with him to help him. He speaks to the Lord at Mizpah. And so the Lord is with him. He then passes through Gilead and Manasseh uh, and passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah, Gilead, he advanced toward the people of Ammon. So uh, he calls upon them to help. He calls upon these people to aid. And this is going to be in contrast with Ephraim's Sibylaths when we get to chapter 12. But Manasseh is ready to help. Uh, just like the, uh, we see with Gideon as he you know, calls upon tribes. They're ready to help. but Ephraim uh, is not ready to help. But we'll see more of that next time. And God does bring a glorious victory. Verses 22, uh, 32 and 33. Jephthah advanced toward the people, fights against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. A great victory. We see in Hebrews 11 that Jephthah, by faith... And there's a list of all the things that these various men did by faith. And one was subdue kingdoms. One was win valiant battles. And Jephthah is part of that. Jephthah is in that hall of faith who is a man of faith. But as we're going to see, he's also a man who is weak sometimes uh, in his faith. But here God provides. He defeated them from Aurora as far as Minith, 20 cities, and to abel Keramim with very great slaughter, Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. So great victory. Great win. But then we have to end on a bit of a depressing note. Because we have to end on this rash, overzealous oath that he gives in verses 30 and 31. He didn't need it. But notice verses 30 and 31. The victory of Jephthah ends in tragedy. And it starts with his oath. Jephthah made a vow, or vowed a vow, to the Lord, and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever, or perhaps better, whoever, could be whatever or whoever, comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's. He could have just stopped there, but he kept going. He opened his mouth and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. He had the spirit. The people were advancing. This is not a request of faith, but manipulation. This is a negotiation. This is not trust in the promises of God, but to further manipulate. Perhaps he felt like the negotiating didn't go well with Ammon and he needed a little bit more, but rather than. Seeking a sign of faith, he manipulates and says, whatever or whoever comes out of my house. And there's no indication that Jephthah did not know what he was saying. Now, remember, he has great qualities, but he is a marauder and it is a he has and it is an idolatrous time in Israel. And one commentator suggests that an animal sacrifice would not have been special. That's just normal. But something greater needed to be sacrificed. Something more costly needed to be given up. And again, the way the Hebrew could be, it could be translated whatever, but it also could be translated whoever. And when you think about it, who is most likely to come and visit him when he returns? A person. Davis says, I have a problem with those who claim Jephthah would never have sacrificed his daughter because that would have been against Yahweh's law. They automatically assume that Jephthah was consistent with what he knew. Is it not just as conceivable that in spite of that knowledge he had, he convinced himself that such a sacrifice, given the emergency, might be not only entirely proper, but also deeply pious? Here is an extravagant sacrifice. Here is a costly sacrifice. He's using Holy and pious language to sound like he is committed to the Lord. Brethren, you and I can do this all the time, not in the same way, but using holy and pious language sometimes to manipulate our Lord. One example that I thought of as I was going through this, and uh, other examples I've thought of as well, but one was William Carey and his first. Wife, He thought in a similar sort of way, not to sacrifice his wife, but holy and pious language. He took the language of, you must uh, leave father and mother and wife and son, literally. I know William Carey did a lot of good things for the kingdom of God. But his first wife, Dorothy, did not want to go. And rather than recognize his commitments to his wife... He said, I was going to go anyway. And it happened to be, he was on the boat, ready to go, without his wife. Something happened with the captain of that boat. He didn't pay his taxes. I don't know all the details. They all did come off that boat. He went to go get his wife, and then she finally came, crying the whole way as they're about to go off to India. She did not want to go. But the point is, he used that language, holy and pious language, in a way that I don't think is meant to be Used. And we see this here. He is ne- Jephthah is negotiating. He is viewing it as a deeply pious thing. I'm willing to sacrifice whatever, if or whoever, if you will deliver us from Ammon, which the Lord does. And the tragedy continues in verses 34 through 40. When Jephthah came to his house, I mean, the way it's written is great, isn't it? (laughs) Great, but depressing. It's meant to be depressing. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter. She comes out to meet him with timbrels and dancing. The reader is meant to gasp. Here is the vow. Here is who comes out. Here is what he said, and here is the one who comes out. And to make the tragedy worse, she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. His daughter, his only daughter. Now this is important for several reasons, the cost of a rash vow, but perhaps there is some biblical connection to Genesis 22 or contrast with Genesis 22 when Abraham offers up Isaac. Three commentators mention this, and one writer goes into more detail with connecting the two, or perhaps recognizing some of the contrast going on. I mean, in Genesis 22, that's the main point of the narrative. It's driving to this climax, driving to this point. Whereas this, it's not needed. It's just, boom, it's thrown in there. Jephthah just does it. He doesn't need it, but it is superfluous. It's not necessary. In Genesis 22, God is testing the commitment of Abraham. But here, Jephthah's testing the commitment of God. In Genesis 22, God intervenes, but here there is no intervention. Intervention. In Genesis 22, it's the father of promise. Here in Judges 11, it is the son of a harlot. In Genesis 22, it is Isaac, the named one, the promised one. Here we have a nameless offspring, the only child of Jephthah, both only children. Uh, It's meant to confirm faith. Here it is in Genesis 22. Here it is to confirm faithlessness. his His daughter, his only daughter. And also as well, it's important to highlight his daughter, his only daughter, as it is connected with her death as a virgin. He opened, and so I'll get to that in just a moment. But we see the tragedy unfold further. Verse 35, and it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me. Of course, he blames his daughter. Mm-hmm. For I have, my, I have given my word or I have opened my mouth. Sometimes it's best just to keep our mouths shut, right? It's just to be, best to let our words be few. I mean, Ecclesiastes 5 talks about that. When we come to the house of the Lord, we ought to come with reverence and awe and fear the Lord. And even in Ecclesiastes 5, we must make sure we don't have rash vows. And here's this rash vow that he makes. Because if you make a rash vow, then you have to keep going with it. And he makes that rash vow. I have opened my mouth. I cannot go back on it. And her response truly is remarkable. We certainly see her death. But her response initially is quite fascinating. She said to him, My father, if you've given your word, if you've opened your mouth to the Lord, is how the Hebrew is translated, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. Do as you have said. But I have this one request, Dad, before you sacrifice me. Verse 37, Then she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander. On the mountains to so bewail my virginity, my friends and I. That wandering was the word used that we saw in Hosea chapter 12. When we see Judah wandering, Judah walking, Judah wandering. We see she's wandering here in the mountains with her friends. And there's perhaps a contrast as well with Jephthah, how, she, how he didn't have any friends. His brothers drove him out. He had the marauders for his pals. Uh, but she actually has friends. I may go and wander in the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends, and I. And so he says, sure, that's fine. Verse 38, go. And he sent her away for two months, and she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. But then the vow is carried out. Verse 39. And it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father, and he carried out his vow with her, which he vowed. Same language as verse 30. The vow he vowed, he's carrying out the vow which he vowed, and she knew no man. Now, brethren, some modern, delicate minds like to try to sanitize this chapter and say she didn't actually die. It's just she was uh, kind of a sentence to a life of perpetual virginity because it says... She knew no man. I don't think that's what happened, especially the way the chapter unfolds, the way it reads. He vowed a vow. He fulfills the vow that he vowed. I mean, everything we see about this, the way it's placed, the way it's put, highlights in my mind very clearly that he actually goes through with it. Now, the text reads in such a way without much comment. It's not that Yahweh approves of it, but Yahweh doesn't intervene either. And I think it highlights a problem and highlights the lesson for Israel that they cannot manipulate God. And if they manipulate God, look where it leads. It leads to tragedy. And the tragic thing is, she knew no man. It's not just tragic for her. It is, it is tragic for her in a lot of ways, trust me. But the main tragedy is Jephthah, isn't it? I mean, she wasn't able to have, uh, get married and have children because her father engaged in a rash vow. But also notice, it was his only daughter, and she knew no man. The main reason it ends with she knew no man is to highlight that Jephthah no longer has a line. That's why that is included there. And we can't miss as well, that the minor judges function as a bookend and a comparison with Jephthah. We see Jair has 30 sons. We see Ebzan has 30 sons and he gave away 30 daughters in marriage. But Jephthah had one daughter and he sacrifices her and she based on a rash vow that he made and she knew no man. Now again, Yahweh does save but a lesson for Israel as well is if they do not trust in the Lord, they will be blotted out. If they do not follow the things of God, they will have no more line. They will be remembered no more. And the irony is, look who is remembered. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. It is his daughter who is remembered. Now, thankfully, there is a bit of a mercy with Hebrews chapter 11 because he is remembered there. But Jephthah that starts off with, I guess, starts off with tragedy, being driven out from his family, has this great victory, but it does end in tragedy. And I think the thing we need to take away is to remember God's sovereignty and to trust in his promises. Trust in the sovereignty of God, trust in his word, trust in what he has said. I think that is the main thrust, especially as we see the comparisons with uh, Genesis chapter 22. That was what? A test of faith. Here we see, in a lot of ways, an example of faithlessness. We need to trust in God's promises, trust in his Sovereign power over all things. And when we pray, it is praying his promises back to him. He has spoken, and we make requests according to the will of God. We're not meant to engage in holy manipulation. We're not meant to have rash vows and piously worded manipulation uh, and use piously worded manipulation to try and twist God's arm. Because rash vows and manipulation indicate a lack of faith. What shows faith is when we read his word, we take him at his word, and that we trust in what his word says. Brethren, we don't have to manipulate God. We have to trust in him. That is the point. Trust in God. Trust in his promises. Trust in his salvation. Trust in Jesus Christ. Trust him. Don't make deals with him. Let us pray. Our God, we are thankful for the things that you teach us in difficult passages of Scripture. And we are thankful that you give us the gift of faith to look to Christ for everlasting life. And we are thankful that even weak faith is still saving faith. And we are thankful that even when we do not pray as we ought, or we manipulate when we shouldn't, we know that we can seek you and find forgiveness. So often, O Lord, we do not trust you as we ought. We worry. We grow anxious. We try to do things to get things. We do spiritual things to receive things from you. But help us to remember that you are a God who is pleased to give good things according to your will. We don't have to manipulate. We don't have to twist your arm. You have revealed yourself in Christ Jesus. You've revealed yourself in your word. And we can trust in that. And we pray that we would. Help us to trust in your ways when it comes to the church and what the church should look like. Help us to trust in your ways when it comes to preaching. Help us to trust in your ways when it comes to how we grow in the things of God, how we grow and bear fruit, namely by your word, reading it, praying it, and being fed by it on the Lord's day. Help us to know that we can ask according to your will, and you will answer according to your will. And we can pray those good things, those promises that you've given, and you will hear us and you will answer them in such a way. So thank you for those promises. Thank you for your sovereign power over all things and your sovereign uh, sovereignty over this entire world. And we're thankful for your, uh, your care especially, how you care especially for your people. And so may we be thoughtful when we pray. May we be careful when we pray. May our yes be yes and our no be no. And may we know more of your word and grow in it. May we remember your goodness. And may we remember the one who is despised and rejected by men. That we might be known by you. And we're thankful that we are known by you. Help us to trust in you, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen. Amen.